0: everybody Mike here and um, welcome to the podcast coming at you from uh, suburban Columbus Ohio where uh, in accordance with my promise to not complain about the weather I'm not going to complain that uh, today is 36 degrees and snowing on April freaking 15th. I'm not going to complain about that. It's actually the 16th. I'm not going to complain about that. I'm not going to complain about the fact that it was 80 degrees for a couple of days here last week and that now it's in the mid-30s and snowing. I'm not. I'm just not going to complain about it. So how are you? (laughs) I hope you're well wherever you are. Uh, Thank you, as always, for tuning in. And thank you for allowing us to be a part of your lives, as always. We're so very grateful uh, for the people who um, like and subscribe, who rate us, who who give us feedback. Uh, Thank you for um, new Patreon supporters. And I mean, we're just... uh, we're just incredibly grateful for the opportunity to do this uh, week in and week out. Uh, last week, we um, we meaning me talked a bit about narcissism, and uh, I did it from the perspective of a friend that I have uh, who struggles with it, and so I talked about him a lot um, and got some got some feedback. So if you if you're just tuning into this episode, I would highly encourage you to listen to the one before this one. Um, where we kind of talk a, a bit about uh, what narcissism is, what causes it, what to look for. Uh, most of us know it when we see it, but it's good to have a little background uh, on it. Today, we want to continue that conversation. But before we dive in, I, I got some comments, uh, loads of comments on this one, but there were a few I wanted to, uh, to recognize. Um, first of all, Young man writes in, hello, I just listened to your podcast regarding narcissism, and it quickly became apparent that you were describing my thoughts and habits. Now, see that exactly. Only a narcissist would hear someone else's thoughts on narcissism and assume that they apply to them, which is perfect. Or, Or, my friend, I can just simply say I had you in mind all along. Either way, Um, you briefly mentioned at the end of the podcast that one avenue of growth has been recognizing your magnitude, the magnitude of your sin and identifying as the biggest sinner in the room this is very helpful. Are there any other tools that you found useful for those of us having narcissistic tendencies? Are there any authors, teachers that you found useful in this area regards? Um, absolutely. We're, I hope at the end of this episode, I'll get into some other things I've learned the hard way. Um, uh, and and yes, there have been people who and and books that have been amazingly amazingly helpful. So so hopefully we get into all of that. But if you've never read a guy named Dallas Willard, um, he he wrote uh, Hearing God, um, the Spirit of the Disciplines, the Divine Conspiracy. Uh, those those are just immensely helpful books for me. He wrote one after those called Renovation of the Heart which is kind of an extrapolation of the spirit of the disciplines, but uh, the whole understanding of spiritual disciplines has been really, really helpful. So off the top of my head, and I'm sure there are other very clinical or more psychological books. Those are just general books that have changed the way I view Jesus and have changed the way I, um, Uh, understand spiritual formation. I would also encourage you to look up a guy named John Coe, C-O-E. He is at the Talbot's Institute of Spiritual Formation, Uh, a mentor of mine from years back who's got some amazing stuff on spiritual formation and how that works. Um, So I would encourage you to check those things out. Uh, And then uh, hopefully again, we'll, at the end of this episode, we'll get to some, some practical uh, other practices And I'd love any thoughts that you have as well. Uh, Another email Holy cow. Hey, Mike. Holy cow. I'm a clinical psychologist. The podcast on narcissism was spot on and so honest and real. I think it was helpful to a lot who struggle with this wound and its defenses. Thank you for being so vulnerable and putting it all out there. Um, thank you so much, Mike. The the ego that has been deprived appreciates that kind of feedback. And um, no, actually, I, to hear from from a psychologist that, um, that we were we were close to you know to being accurate is always is always a great thing so thank you thank you thank you for your feedback i'm very very glad that uh that uh, we were you know congruent with kind of what's the the psychological understanding that's out there of this and then uh, my friend aline um on our facebook community group page asked uh, this one is there a sliding scale for narcissism i'm asking for a friend (laughs) now that's awesome Um, and and she's got some more, but let me deal with this really quickly. It it seems like there is, and and in other words, it seems like there are elements that, that of, of what we would classically understand as narcissism, uh, that are, uh, that are absolutely necessary to be a normal kind of functioning, uh, person in the world. Um, so, so I don't think that, you know, on the one hand, the desire to feel significant. I mean, I I think that is part of our Imago day, right? It's part of our image bearing the desire to be a part of something bigger than ourselves i think that's a good thing um but but i i think that 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 can be warped and twisted in a way that you begin to get life um, and you begin to demand and you begin to feel entitled and you begin to prop up a false self around the idea of feeling important and feeling a part of something bigger. And that's where it crosses the line. So, so I think there are some things we talked about on that last time on that long, big list that are, that are actually things that elements of which are needed to be a healthy, uh, functioning adult in the world. So yes, there does seem to be like, it's a sliding scale. Hopefully, hopefully, uh, over the course of the last 10 years, I've grown less to be this way. Um, although certain parts, you know, seem to be core elements of my personality, um, I, I, I fully believe in the power of Jesus, the disciplines and the community, um, to bring transformation. I also think that to a certain degree, the desire for attention, the desire for significance, some of those things aren't necessarily bad. So absolutely. It seems like there's a spectrum. Um, then you wrote onto that note, I wanted to thank you again for putting yourself out there. You're welcome. I was thinking about what the opposite of narcissism is being humble, Right. And uh, she says, I read a couple of verses on being humble, Philippians 2, 1 Peter 5, James 4, Matthew 11. I love that. I love that. I love that. And I was thinking, she said, about your example of of being in the group study where you find it really hard not to interject. Um, I get, she says, you not wanting to be a braggadocious person about all the churches you've been a part of and the books you've written. Oh, yes. But I also think that maybe you need to consider interjecting. Uh, into the group. I mean, what a bummer to be in a study group with Mike and not get to hear uh, what God has spoken to your heart and your mind. The opposite of narcissism can't be silence. Discernment is necessary in managing both narcissism and modesty. Anyway, lots more to say on this topic, mostly because I, parentheses, I mean, my friend felt a little bit convicted and I would figure, but I figured I would mention this much. I absolutely cannot agree more with your question and and i don't i really don't know i mean I, I need to think about that i have not yes of course humility but but i think there are lots of false understandings about what humility is and is not um there there does seem to be this aspect of self-denial that isn't denying self um as much as it is um uh, self-denial, which I, I view as an entirely different thing. Um, I, I am a self. I have a personality. I'm an individual. God loves me. Um, so, so I'm not denying that I am a self. Uh, but self-denial seems like a, an incredibly important, different uh, idea. Um, than denial of self, so on the one hand, denial of self could easily be say like, yeah, you know when you when you do something well, um yeah, you, you'd never take credit for it, no no, no, do, it was all God. and it's like, nah, God really designed the world to have human participants a part of his work and um and so it's it's okay to accept <laughs> accept some thank yous and affirmations and encouragements um, but but self-denial seems to be a different, sort of thing where you're consistently putting the needs of others ahead of your own. If that's what we mean by humility, then yes, that seems like the opposite of narcissism is exactly what Paul writes in the passage you mentioned, Philippians chapter two, where God, or excuse me, where Jesus, who being uh, in very nature, God did not consider equality with God, something to be held on to, but rather he made himself nothing, taking on the very form of a servant. Um, that, that exactly is the opposite of narcissism so you're right in the sense that um just sitting there and 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 not i mean because health isn't just never speaking because i'm afraid of of doing it from wrong motives or never preaching because i'm i'm afraid i could be doing it from wrong motives absolutely you're absolutely right that in that sense it's not the opposite of silence but silence and obscurity i do think play important roles in the the art of learning um self-denial so that i think there are times when even though i want to interject and think oh my goodness the world would be so much more better off if uh if people were to pay attention to my words right now um (laughs) i think there is a beautiful uh practice of of just remaining silent now that now i don't think you'd be silent just for the sake of being silent i think you'd be silent uh for the sake of becoming healthy and health for me, would look like th- sitting in a room and not being aware of how I'm being perceived or being worried about how I'm being perceived. But instead, would just naturally have enough emotional intelligence and spiritual discernment to watch an ebb and flow of conversation, to know uh, or get a sense of when I should be contributing and when I should be silent. At this point, I, I don't. I don't have a um, modulating switch. I'm am kind of all or nothing, and um, and so. Part of a discipline for me is the discipline of obscurity, right? It's, it's, and, and even doing a podcast, um, you know, if, if we're not careful can be a exercise in narcissism, right? Because here I am in a room by myself talking about very important things, responding to people's questions, you know, setting myself up as some very important voice. And so one of the reasons why I did last week and, and felt like I really needed to share, honestly, there were two reasons. One, um, that's part of my attempt to dismantle the false self that I'm tempted to create. But then secondly, um, if, if we're going to critique the church on some points uh, like we are today, then I want to make sure that, uh, that I've dealt with the log in my own eye before I, I point out the speck of dust and others. So fantastic thoughts. Thank you for your feedback. And there was, there was a lot more than that, but those I thought each brought out uh, really good points, particularly the one that complimented me now. Um, (laughs) it's incredibly important to understand that, uh, these sorts of issues are nothing new. Now we, we may have better diagnostic tools, um, and we may have better labels, but this kind of stuff, Goes all the way back, you know, into the Old Testament. Um, Certainly in the New Testament church. I mean, John and Third John, a really popular book. Third John, um, John writes to a a church leader. Um, He says this. He says, "I wrote something to the church by by but Diotrephes." who loves to be first among them does not accept what we say for this reason. If I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does unjustly accusing us with wicked words and not satisfied with this. He himself does not receive the brother either, and he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. So this is some sort of church leader that is not submitting to John's authority. And, and here's how he describes him. Um, I, I wrote something in the church, but died off, by, by Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. Now that, that in a one word descriptor is uh, the summation of narcissism right there. Um, and, and so obviously this was something that the New Testament church was dealing with. I mean, there were conflicts over different human personalities um, in the Corinthian church. And so, so uh, the, we wanna recognize that narcissists are attracted to professions where they get a lot of recognition and they get a lot of favor. They're held in high regard and vocational Christian church ministry is one of the most appealing, I think professions uh, for those of us of this um, Of this persuasion uh because because of the unique combination between attention and high regard in other words there is uniquely in church ministry the opportunity to become celebrity in ways that don't require you to be talented in movies or music or arts and um and so i really think there is something wrong in the way americans understand church and leadership and and like senior leadership that that I think makes pastoral work because because the question has to be asked okay so why why are there so many celebrity pastors and why are so many of these celebrity pastors having moral failures um, and and I understand moral failures completely. I I, I get them. Um, I've had my own. I totally understand what the what what it means to not be perfect in senior leadership. But it seems like there's there are these high profile things that keep coming down uh, social media at us about different um, different platforms and and people who built them and things that happen and those platforms go away. So I wanted to ask the question: What is it about the way? Americans, uh, and not all of them, um, but my tribe of American evangelicals, what is it about our understandings of church and ministry and leadership that that cause narcissists to gravitate those, to, to some of those roles? And, and certainly, please hear, not everybody who is in a megachurch role or has a large platform is a narcissist, right? I think of a guy like Dallas Willard. I just read his biography and it's phenomenal if you're a fan of his you you need absolutely need to read it but this guy never sought a platform he never had a speaking contract he never had a set fee to speak he just uh, he never was uh, he never like submitted a book proposal i mean he was approached for all of these things and there's a guy who had a huge platform or a guy like eugene peterson huge platform you know, or somebody like Beth Moore. I mean, I, I, I follow her on Twitter and she is amazing. Here's somebody that, that these are people that are trustworthy with their platforms precisely because they never sought to have one. And, um, and so it's, it's, I, I, in no way, shape or form, am I denigrating the fact that God gives platforms to people. And sometimes as we see in the scriptures, God will use very, very flawed people to do incredible work through. So hallelujah for that. But I do think there are unique, um, and, and sometimes tragic ideas buried into Western American evangelicalism, um, in terms of how we understand leadership and church and so on and so on. That give rise to pastoral abuses in in terms of power, uh, in terms of sexuality, uh, and, and and its failings. I mean, I just think there are unique things that need to be pointed out. Um, so this is going to be a bit scattershot, but but been been thinking a lot about it. And and one of the you know one of the the great tragedies I think in American um, church culture is the fact that, and I know it's being resisted more these days now than ever in my short lifetime, but but the church is primarily a place where an, a weekly event is held And that event exalts one or two gifts over the rest of the gifts in the body of Christ. Um, It's usually an event. It's some sort of worship teaching event, but even calling it worship denigrates it because, you know, we just associate worship with singing. So you have a really gifted song leader and you have a really gifted speaker. And those are the two that usually, those are the gifts that are, are primarily put on display. Yes, of course, you need admins and shepherds and people with the gift of mercy uh but but those aren't the gifts that everyone kind of notices or talks about or that the church is built upon the church is really built upon the speaking gift and the musical gifts of of several people And so anytime you're exalting one sort of gift publicly over others, I mean, Paul, evidently this was something happening in the Corinthian church because Paul writes 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 about the administration of spiritual gifts. And particularly how about those people who are gifted in ways that aren't obvious and they don't get special honor, um, they're worthy of it. Uh, precisely because they're not public and uh, because God has given very important things to do with people that you'd never see uh, or never notice. And so... We under, we've reduced church. Now, again, there's this whole big swing against this, but no matter how much we're swinging, there's still a remnant, a, a residue of, of this sort of Christian cultural understanding that church is a place where there is an event on the weekend or some other time where I sit in a seat and I, yes, participate, but primarily consume. I evaluate churches the way I would evaluate movies, asking, did I like it? Was it good? Um, I assume that just like Big businesses, bigger is always better. So small churches can't be that great, uh, because they're small and just in virtue of their being small, if they were great, they would grow. Um, and so that we, we kind of load into the church, this cultural assumption that bigger equals better. Um, so if it's big, it must be important. If it's big, it must be successful. If it's big, uh, it must be blessed by God. And in these environments, the idea of a brand or the idea of self-promotion, building a platform, all of that's totally acceptable in Christian circles. And again, I'm not saying it's all bad. Uh, Obviously, I podcast. Obviously, I'm on Twitter. Um, I have a very small platform, um, uh, but a platform nevertheless. And and there's always a part of me that has wanted one that is larger. Absolutely. The issue, though, uh, comes in. When, um, when self-promotion uh, gets Christianized, and, and again, I don't mean. I mean, promotion of the self. Now, now, obviously letting people know ministry things that are happening, letting people know, you know, you've you've written a book. I mean, I, I get all of that and I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about self-promotion in that way. I'm talking about promotion of the self, that, that social media now is a way in which my false self can be continually propped up, continually blessed, continually liked, continually retweeted. And I don't have to do the hard work of community um, um, or confession, or even being known uh, in order to receive ego gratification by simply tweeting out something very incredibly witty or something very smart or whatever it is. And so, so social media has enabled self-promotion in ways that we can't help but try to Christianize. And, and again, some of this is just fine. I totally understand. But there is a sense that the temptation towards narcissism has just made all the much greater. By the fact that the opportunities for self-promotion are proliferating and Francis Chan uh, is somebody who I have unbelievable respect for. Here's somebody who had a massive platform. He wrote a book that just went nuts. He took every cent of the money he received from that book and, um, and gave it away. Created a foundation, gave it away. Left the mega church because he was dissatisfied with that model and now plants little house churches, um, I believe, still in San Francisco, although it's been a couple years since I've heard, which is exactly the point. Francis goes to conferences, he shares a lot what he's doing, but here's a guy that never, never intended on building a platform, though God has given him one but he certainly is not somebody that promotes self. Uh, if anything, he goes to the opposite of, of that in a very, very extreme way. So so there are people I think that are out there that are really able to handle uh, a large platform, but as we see in the scriptures, God will give, sometimes he'll give success beyond what someone's character can handle. And um, and so I think that, that our understanding of church uh, and, and certainly the way that that understanding is practiced um, gets at least called into question. Now, I'm not saying that it's wrong to go to a church because I, I would I love to pastor these churches and be a part of these churches where there is a big gathering and there is somebody who gets up and is gifted teaching and somebody who gets up and who's gifted in worship leading. My point in bringing that up is to simply say that I think both the congregation and the leadership have to be aware of the unconscious collusion that happens between meeting the people's, the the, the folks that are on stage by meeting their ego Needs. I'm not saying, of course, of course, it's nice to be liked. Of course, it's nice to have influence. I'm not saying that any of that is bad. I'm just saying it's the, the the really subtle collusion that can begin to exist between people who want to be a part of something important and here's this kind of rock star celebrity pastor in church. Francis has this great line. He's like, if you ever in a church and you hear the name of the pastor more than you need, hear the name of Jesus, you really need uh, to be worried. And. I'm paraphrasing him, but I always thought that was a really remarkable and insightful statement because even in the first century people were arguing about personalities right Paul has to deal with this in first Corinthians where he he's dealing with people who are like you know I, I follow Paul and I follow Cephas who's Peter I follow Apollos. and they're getting these the, the the so it's not just not just on the leadership side it lies the the heart of narcissism but even on the follower side right I mean we even name them followers or or congregants I mean they, they, they there's this sense in which we're always looking for for people to follow and identify with and to kind of give um, credibility to. And so uh, both directions uh, of this have to be addressed, at least acknowledged in a really healthy environment. So I'm around uh, lots of big mega church pastors, some of whom are incredible and handle this well, some of whom you can just tell they reek of self-promotion. They reek of platform building. They never show weakness. They never show themselves in any unattractive way. They never, you know, anything they reveal about themselves is always humorous. Oh, isn't that sweet? Here's a cute story about my kid. It's never just ugly. It's never just visceral. It's never just raw. It's never just something that could possibly turn somebody off. And, uh, and I just think that's toxic. And for those of us participating in the In in part of the platform of those people, I think we have a responsibility uh, to remove allegiance uh, to leaders who are clearly about building a platform. And and, and you can say, hey, it's all about Jesus. But um, if it's all about you, even when you say it's all about Jesus, uh, doesn't matter whether you say it's about him or not. It's really about you. So I think there's this big discernment that we have to we have to get to that flows from the uh, a changing definition of what church is. Church is of course is a people, not a place, not a not a program. Church of course is a uh, a people that are characterized by God dwelling among them. That is the primary characteristic of God's people is God dwells among them. And so they're both holy and unholy. They're they're people in process. They're people covered by covenants because they cannot approach uh, righteousness, the righteousness and holiness of God, by themselves through their own merits. These are these are people that are uh, that should be um, unbelievably in touch with grace, not only for themselves but for others. These are people who diligently want to see God's purposes at work in the world, and who, when healthy, will not care who gets the credit for that, as long as um, what God is after is actually happening. And so when you start looking at church that way, well, then you get, then you, you, you kind of get to different forms. And even though you may have a once a week sort of big uh, gathering with a stage, um, you recognize you have to have smaller groups. You have to have other places where gifts are being developed. And so the nature of uh, what we understand church to be, of course, has to be very, very um, carefully rethought so that even when we're in scenarios where there's kind of one primary voice, one primary leader, one primary personality, um, we're not giving that individual undue allegiance um, and loyalty that there's this, this, this sense that this is really, this thing is really about Jesus. Um, so, so our current understandings uh, and definitions of church um, make, make this attractive uh, to people who, uh, who are narcissistic, uh, in one way or another, the, 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 the nature and definition we, we have in my tribe anyway of leadership, um, is also, I I think very, very narrow and very, um, difficult. So, so we are, we are watching, um, a generation of baby boomer pastors who have built, big, big churches. They've built buildings, they've built big uh, congregations, they've written big books. I mean, and and uh, they're now starting to transition out of those positions and then transition people who are new into those positions. But a lot of, a lot of uh, these folks have, have either reflected on leadership or quoted other leadership gurus or practiced a kind of leadership that does seem to be very narrow. It's it's like type A, I'm out front, I'm a visionary, I'm a CEO. Um, uh, and, and certainly there are people that God gives those gifts to. Absolutely. My objection is that that is kind of the only understanding we have of leadership, that, um, that there aren't bigger and more understandings of leadership. So that senior your pastors can can exist in in worlds where they don't have the gift of leadership, but leadership is still expressed by people who have it, or um, or leadership is expressed through a cooperative and mutually um, sacrificing people. Um, uh, that leadership becomes um, not just this very narrow entrepreneurial take the hill because that's 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 my kind of leadership i mean i naturally gravitate to type a out front visionary ceo of course but that also gets me in a ton of trouble because i can easily isolate i can easily believe the hype i can easily think that i've got it figured out and i know all the answers and everyone is just waiting to get enlightened for what you know whatever idea i'm going to bring and that just that's just toxic that is absolutely brutal and i think really resists the spirit of god at work in the churches through other people and so for me if if as long as we are gonna narrowly define leadership, um, then I think we're gonna keep attracting um, folks for whom that kind of leadership might come very naturally, but that kind of leadership also is very attractive for the kinds of perks it gives. In other words, um, you know, if you're always out front, then you can get life from always having to be out front, get significance, get importance from always having to be the one out front. Uh, or you're the visionary um, or, or you're the type A and you've got to develop everybody else um, and can't really learn anything from anybody under you. Um, you know, you're somebody that needs a hierarchy. I mean, there are all these sorts of things built into our assumptions about leadership that at least need to be examined and called into question in the way that they're practiced um, and understood by the scriptures, because obviously Jesus, you know, presents a very different picture of leadership. Although Jesus was clearly the focus of attention, clearly the teacher who was teaching, clearly the, the, the one whom ministry revol- revolved, uh, yet he was able to define leadership as servanthood. And, and we'll all, all of us will say, of course, leadership is servanthood. But I tell you the truth, in my heart, uh, there, there becomes a place where, I, because I need to feel special or entitled, yes, uh, yes, of course I serve, but I serve by leading, and I serve by teaching, and I, I, I serve by, um, you know, having um, kind of unique perks that go with the role or the pressures of the role or whatever. So, so even, even those sorts of understandings can be abused if, if we're not careful and again man i'm not indicting anyone or any form um i i this is speaking autobiographically i i just think that um our our imaginations are way too narrow when it comes to the forms of church so that uh if you're a narcissist um you might gravitate to those oh there's seth Erie. seth theory's home from school ladies and gentlemen Hello, Seth Erie. Hi. Okay, say hello, Internet. Hi, Nuts. Say, it's Mike and Seth. Mike and Seth. And we're here in Ohio. Hello. How was school today? It's good. Was it good today? Yeah. Can you give your daddy kisses? Okay, that was a blowing a kiss to the microphone. How about your dad give yeah. him kisses? Yeah. Oh, awesome. Thank you so much, buddy. All right, can I keep going? Yeah. Hey, thanks for saying hi, Sethy. Happy. Love you, boy. I think the floppy is on the kitchen table. Or do I have it? No, I have it. I have the floppy. Oh, okay. If you don't know what the floppy is, um, our little dude, Seth, loves the combination. So I'm looking at a floppy in my hand right now that is a comb, and it's got like a lanyard you know, a little cloth sort of knit necklace that clips onto the comb. So the comb is firm, but when you like flop it around, there's this little floppy part to it. That is the floppy. And that is simply the most important part of Sathiri's life. life. If if asked to choose between the floppy and his parents, he may go floppy. I'm not quite sure. But so his first question when he comes home from school, because he can't have it at school, is where is the floppy? Um, So anyway... Seth theory questions about how narrowly we define the idea of leadership and, um, you know, is it possible to become somebody secure enough in your own giftedness that, that other people who have different elements of gifts of leadership are welcome at the table? And then lastly, um, and this one's long, so I, I don't know, I may, I may have to wait to what we do. See you, big boy. Thank you for blowing kisses. Uh, may have to wait till next podcast cuz we're already 30, 33 minutes. I by the way, I hope this is helpful. I hope it's coming across well because I last thing I want to do is just sit here and, and be critical. I just think man, this is we have to discern because we haven't done a great job I think discerning always um, about the people we give platforms to. I also think um, the nature of the role, so the nature of church, how we understand it, the nature of leadership, and then the nature of the role of kind of senior pastor lead teacher, uh, kind of lends itself to this sort of celebrityism. Um, the stage is absolutely toxic because somebody somebody who wants attention where are you where are you most at home, most at home on the stage, baby, and it took a long time for for me to get to the point where I could go up and teach on a big stage, um, but not be defined completely by what, by how I did. My wife always makes fun of me because I would, I would walk down immediately say, Hey, how was that? <laughs> Cause that for me was the most important thing, right? It wasn't, it wasn't, I really hope that blessed people. It was, Hey, was that good? <laughs> I don't want to suck. Um, So the nature of the stage is toxic because think about, think about what's going on there. People are clapping. People are affirming you. They send you emails and encouragement that God has used you to change their life or to bless them or convict them. And and hallelujah, those things are so kind and nice and encouraging, and they are needed for a lot of us. Absolutely. But you also have up there, you have power, control, and influence. Right, in the sense of you have people there who are sitting, listening to you. Um, and, and for a lot of church services, there's a great deal of control exercised um, uh, because we don't, want, we don't want to be unpolished. Um, and, and the desire to influence, obviously, you, know, you get into vocational ministry uh, to be a blessing to other people, but that can quickly turn into um, meeting my own ego needs to feel significant and important. Um, so one author, I loves this, they call the church, um, if we're not careful, they call the, the big church kind of the applause machine. And, and that just means um, that it's very, very tempting to, to prep up the false self when we're up there teaching and we're up there leading worship. Um, because on the one hand, our ego needs are being met. Here I am. I'm the center of 1800 people are watching me right now or 7,000 or whatever it is. And they're tuning in online and so on, so and so on. And what I have to say is really, really important, and often it is. Um, but the, but there is a sense in which if we're not careful, that then becomes a way of propping up the false self and our hidden self, our real self, we can never let out because we built this. We built a whole platform. We built a whole church on the false self. We built these expectations in the people, and now we have financial motivation to keep the false self going because if people were really going to know how sick and dark our hearts really were, well, then they wouldn't support us anymore. And so there is this big edifice that that comes along um, with being super gifted, because now instead of you know being a servant of all, or now being able to walk well in weakness, um, now now you've gotta you've gotta live under and for uh, the expectations of other people, and that's that is a heavy heavy load uh, to live with. So 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 the the concept of celebrity pastors. And if you want to hear more about this, um, this idea of celebrity pastors, um, a guy named Sky Jithani, he's a friend of the podcast, a personal uh, acquaintance and friend. He he and I went to college together and then have reconnected the last couple of years. He has something on YouTube about why are there so many celebrity pastors? And he gets into something that he calls... Um, he calls it the EIC, the Evangelical Industrial Complex. This is a reference back to the military industrial complex when with the rise of um, governmental agencies um, that would contract out to defense contractors, um, you had now a financial incentive to keep you know, millions of people employed and lots of money to be made. You had a financial incentive to stay at war um, or, or at least to threaten um and in the same way um sky rightly points out there's there is a a huge financial incentive uh, in terms of finding the next big celebrity pastor and that and that role that that incentive really um is formed around three elements the the eic the evangelical industrial complex is formed around three elements And, and again he does a much better job kind of identifying this, but he, he asks just such great questions. He says, first, the evangelical, um, industrial complex is really built around three components, the mega church, the Christian publishing industry, and the publication of books, uh, and, uh, excuse me, the mega church, the publication of books and the Christian conference circuit, um, and, and, it, and this was new when I published, So the first book I published was a book named Jesus of Suburbia. And I published that in like, oh, 2006, maybe. Um, I don't exactly remember. And I, and, and I had an agent and I had been approached to do this. And so I was like, hey, this is really cool. Uh, the book sold well, uh, at least for a first book in the Christian market. And I remember, I, I this was like, I was attending loads of conferences. We had these youth specialties conferences and there were leadership conferences. And this was before like the big catalyst conferences and stuff. And, um, and, I, and I remembered um, such disappointment upon hearing that my favorite conferences, the people they booked to speak, were all people that had books with the publishing company. In other words, there was a publishing company who sponsored a conference, all right? And, and they weren't shy about letting people know they sponsored this conference. I just didn't put it all together, but, but because they sponsored the conference, the speakers that they selected to put on stage were all speakers who had books with that publisher. So, because I didn't have a book with that publisher, I'd never be highlighted. Um, And, and, and that the books, uh, the people chosen to write books were all people that had large churches. So the evangelical industrial complex takes megachurch pastors because they have large platforms, introduces them to the publishing world, even if they have good or bad ideas, but because they have large platforms, then we can sell a lot of books, throws in conferences and conference invites that now are made to those who have books to promote or content to promote, which further feeds into their mega church brand. And so there's this kind of cyclical thing that's happening. And there is a lot of money involved in uh, in Christian publishing. Now that doesn't mean all Christian publishers are bad or all conferences are bad. But there was even one huge conference. I was I was um, kind of on the ground floor of a planning meeting, and literally the success of the conference was determined by how much quote, product was sold, not the attendees uh, to the conference, but how many books, tapes, whatever were sold as to the attendees um, because of the platforms of the people who were speaking and you just realize okay that's the there are really good people in the christian publishing world there are really good people in the megachurch world there are really good people in the conference world and i'm not in any way saying that that's not true there are really good people but i've also seen heard and experienced some things where it it does feel like and, and sky points this out beautifully that the only qualification it seems Um, or at least it used to be, I hope maybe it's less true now. Um, the only, the only qualification, um, seems to be, uh, how influential or how big the platform, um, is, uh, and, and so it doesn't, so, so for instance, he, and Sky does a great job with this. He says, how do we know that people who write marriage books have good marriages? Like who checks that? Uh, Or people that are are giving, uh, writing books on sexuality um, are healthy in their sexuality. Uh, Or people that are writing books on, you know, being gracious in leadership are actually gracious in leadership and not just self-serving jerks. Uh, how do we know? Like who's, who's arbitrating that? Is it the churches of these mega church pastors or the elder boards? Is it, it, it turns out to be the editors of the publishing houses. And uh, so if you have a big enough platform and a marketable enough idea, well, then often you get a book deal, regardless whether or not the book will be any good. It's just matters. Can it sell? And so Sky, uh, I would encourage you to check it out. Sky just, you know, talks about these sorts of things um because because there is a financial there is an industry propping up um and ha- the, and and it does have a vested interest in christian celebrities um and uh, if we're not careful i mean that's why you're never seeing somebody on stage who pastors the church of 30. right they're always the big pastors they're always the and, and sometimes they're the best people for the job sometimes the people with the biggest um uh, platforms are the people who have the most important things to say. I just wanna throw out the idea that that's not always true, but who discerns this? How do we recognize this? So uh, in answer to the question, hey, what is it about ministry that attracts people who have um, narcissistic tendencies? Well, certainly in my tribe, the way we define church, the way we define leadership, the way we define kind of what it is to be a senior pastor, um, certainly is appealing because it provides all the stuff our, our false self would want. Now, I think we're going to have to wait till next podcast to talk about how do we war against that. So I'll, I'll leave it now. We're at 43 minutes. Uh, most of you have fallen asleep. Um, and uh, not that I blame you at all, but next podcast will cover... Um, unless, you know, we're at war with Syria now, now that we've launched missiles or something. Uh, next podcast, if nothing horrible happens between now and then, we'll talk about uh, what do we do? What do we do corporately? What do you do if you're a person who's at a church that you think, hmm, this person's narcissistic? Um, what, do you, what do you do if you're a person like our, our friend who asked early, hey, how do I work on this? Um, really, really got some, got some thoughts. Um, and I hope they're helpful. So, my brothers and sisters, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you. May it stop snowing. And may our Lord give you peace in these days. Till next time, brothers and sisters, thanks so much for tuning in. Hey, thanks for listening to the Vox Podcast. Learn more about us at voxpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Vox Podcast. And now support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash voxpodcast.